Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the final episode of season one of The Milkman of St. Gaff's. It's taken more than a year to get here, and I'd like to give a very heartfelt thank you to everyone who's come along for this ride. I would also like to thank some new patrons. Erin Lund, Apprentice, Gabby Billings, Fly Sprayer, Carter Ruth, Department of Lactic Affairs, Radio Clerk. I would also like to congratulate the indefatigable Mr. F on being promoted to Fly Sprayer. This episode is called Full Circle. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gav's, starring Howie the Milkman. He never came back up. 
I guess he sank to the bottom then. What's that? It's an earthquake! There was a terrible cracking noise and the ground shook, but then it stopped and there was only this eerie quiet after. I'd been looking right at Stormy's face. She looked scared when the ground was moving, but as soon as it was still, her eyes filled up again with hate, and my beloved Stormy, who once did seek me out, fled from me, running down the pier. I made a move to chase her, but Frank grabbed my shoulder. Just let her go, bud. Just let her go. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. I thought about the wisdom of what he said as I watched her disappear back into the town, her shiny hair shining in the moonlight. Then the police went back to staring at the water in the harbor. Well? Corwin asked. He ain't come up, mister. Don't matter, unless he can breathe underwater. <laughs> Fine. Coxwell, what happened with the cow? I think it's still loose, sir. I know that. How did it get loose? I, it was McMurdle. The cow kicked him and he was hurt and I had to get the cow out of there. Corwin opened his mouth and I could tell he wasn't about to have anything nice to say. But he just stopped and I think we all sensed that something was wrong. There was a rustling of little wings and I felt a gentle breeze on my face. A fly. It was about twice the size of a normal house fly. It flew right past me and landed on Corwin's cheek. He slapped it off in disgust. Mr. Corwin always hated flies. Then there was a low, vibrating buzzing sound and some awful muffled laughter. It was my dad again, lumbering down the harbor. He was all puffy and stuffed like a scarecrow, and he couldn't walk very well. He seemed bigger and the buzzing was coming from him. He was laughing a revolting laugh. His jaw was back on his head. He stretched out his arms towards us. There were flies spewing out of his sleeves and shirt. What is that here? Lord, whale's blood. The police ran. The milkmen did not. Take it down, Corwin commanded. Beaver and Frank clenched their fists and walked towards the laughing thing. But I, I was filled with so much rage and hate that I lunged at it first, clawing at its laughing face, my fingers sinking into the mass of bugs and rotting cartilage. Beaver tried to grab it, but my father struck out with his arm and knocked Beaver right over the edge into the water. Get him on the ground, Howie, Frank shouted, and he threw himself against me and the thing, knocking it to the ground. We heard from the water, There's bodies down here. I'd never heard Beaver sounding so animated. On the ground, I was horrified at the sensation of a million flies crawling in and out of my mouth and nose, into my ears and over my eyes. I could feel every little leg, every little squirt of acid. I tried to brush them off, but as soon as I took my hands off my dad, he gave a tremendous push and threw Frank and me off onto the concrete, and it got back to his feet. Frank was trying desperately to brush the flies off, just like me. 
Corwin, who'd been standing by, decided to take matters into his own capable hands. He put them around the thing's neck and squeezed. I took a step towards it, but before I could get further, the thing opened its mouth and a jet of thick brown mucus spewed out onto Corwin's face. Corwin stepped back, stunned. His fortitude was astonishing as he scraped the stuff off his face and eyes. His nose was plugged and his mouth was open, gasping for air. Frank ran to Corwin and used his sleeve to clean his face off. Rage welled up inside me. This thing that had been haunting me was now hurting my friends. I flew at the monster with both fists, but it just dispersed into a cloud of flies. A cloud so thick I could hardly see. It was deafening. The ground started shaking again. I ran to get out, waving my arms in front of me to see, but I couldn't see at all. I ran down the harbor. The flies thinned out a bit, and I was close to the shipyard. The hull of the ship was lit up from the inside with thousands of little lights, like little hovering candles, fireflies. As I watched, surrounded by flies, I saw the first flames that would illuminate this now infamous night and destroy the ship the men of St. Gaffs had spent so many months building. The great ship would never be launched. I stood transfixed, as if untouched by the chaos unfolding around me, knowing that I was somehow at the center of it all. Swarms of flies hovered over the town, and there was something wrong with the houses. There was a horrible sinking feeling. The comforting symmetry of the houses was broken. Some of the rooftops were sticking out at strange angles or sunken down, like a perfect mouth after someone had punched some of the teeth out. The flies made it hard to see, and between the moonlight and the conflagration burning behind me, illuminating the bugs in strange lights, it seemed like everything I'd seen beneath the earth had been vomited up onto the surface. As I watched the plague of insects enveloping my new hometown, I could just barely make out, above the swarms, something moving, towering in red. It moved like a knee joint, the giant red bones of a dead cow stomping. I saw the glint of a horn in the sky. A fly landed on my lip and I slapped it off, and when I looked back, the giant bones were gone, either back into the depths of my imagination or back underground. Then this terrible fear gripped me. Stormy might still be out on the street somewhere. I started into town, I tried to run, but it was like I was stuck in the mud and moving slower than everything around me. I couldn't get my legs going fast enough, and I could tell that the flies were catching up, that he was catching up. It wasn't far to my building, but when I got there, I was shocked to find that the front door was locked. I didn't even know there was a lock. I stood back and shouted up, Mrs. Summertag, it's Howie, open the door! I had to cut my hands to keep the flies out. I stepped back so I could look up. The only face I saw, a few floors up, was the little boy. But right away, I saw his mother there in the window. She looked down at me, scared, and then just pulled the curtains back. Mrs. Summertag! And then my neighbor poked her head out the window. I could see the flies pouring in. 
I heard her say, Close that window right now, are you crazy? Then a pair of arms pulled my neighbor back in, and there was Mrs. Summertag closing the window, giving me a nasty look, and then she closed the curtains too. Mrs. Summertag, it's Howie! Let me in! Then I heard the awful laughing. I turned, and the old brown-suited fly head was there. He had a broken bottle and was lurching towards me. I ran as best I could through the clouds of insects. There was no one on the street. Further into town, I tried a couple of doors of people who were on my route, all locked. No one came to the door. I didn't even bother trying Mrs. Noseworthy's house. I had to avoid new sinkholes that had opened up. Inside them, there was just a black, yawning darkness, darker than just underground darkness. Mr. Greenwood's house was locked up tight and there were no lights on inside. Stormy! Stormy! She didn't answer, which I expected. I hoped she was in there, but there was more laughing and bugs and I had to get going. I kept running, catching glimpses of my father here and there. He seemed to be around every corner, and always behind me. I got to the business part of town. I went to Granard's place. I knew he'd help me out after everything we'd been through. I banged on his door, and I was sure I saw lights on inside, but no one came to help me. I ran further down the street. I couldn't see many lights behind the windows, but every light I did see seemed to go off as I passed like some awful darkness was following me. I thought I heard locks clicking and shutters slamming everywhere I went. I looked up to the moon for help, but it was blotted out by clouds of flies that went way up into the sky. Then, Mrs. Pyman came running out of an alleyway. It it was horrible. She was grabbing at her neck and there was blood everywhere. Then I saw she pulled a long piece of glass out of her neck. It was from a brown bottle like my dad had. I tried to get her to stop, but she couldn't speak and just kept running. I could feel his presence, and every time I stopped, the flies got thick around my face. No one answered at Dr. Barrett's. He was probably out helping someone. It was getting hard to run on the streets, since they were getting covered in thick, white slugs. Eventually, I made it to the church. I pounded on the door and... Thank the whaler, Father Whelan opened up and pulled me in, then slammed the door back shut. Good God, Howie, what are you doing out there? I was in the harbor when it started. No one would let me in. So these flies are everywhere. Everywhere, all over the town. A lot of houses have fallen in. There's more of those holes. I have to make a phone call. You wait here. And he shuffled to the steps of the tower. I started shaking from cold, or maybe just from everything that had happened, but then something horrible occurred to me. Maybe Stormy hadn't gotten home. Maybe she went to the milk station looking for me so that I could defend her and help her. I burst out of the church and back out onto the street. I slipped on the slugs a couple of times, but eventually made it to the milk station. It was cracked all over. Billy on the wall was mostly destroyed. My old friend was just a pile of rubble, except on the bit of wall that still stood, one of Billy's eyes staring accusingly at me. Had all of this happened because I'd forgotten to cover up the hole? I looked over and couldn't really see what was going on over there, although if anything the flies were less thick around here. But then the station door opened. 
McMyrtle came stumbling out, clutching his head. His face was all white and pale, except for all the blood. I went up to him. Hey, Albert, are you okay? He stared blankly at me. Howie, is that you? Is Stormy inside? Did she come here? He just kept staring. He obviously had no idea what I was talking about. I guess the cow had kicked him pretty hard. I grabbed his arm and tried to pull him back towards the station, but he was frozen on the spot. The flies were gathering around us. Come on, let's get inside. Then I turned and saw what he was looking at. The cow, without any regular skin anymore. It was glowing red like a glowing piece of coal. Its eyes were bright orange and evil. It snorted and ran at us. I ran, and Albert still had enough sense to run with me. We ended up in the parking lot, our backs against a milk truck and the furious cow in front of us. I thought about my father and how I'd fought back, and I thought in that split second that maybe I could fight the cow off too. I was terrified, but there was also this rage inside me, telling me I couldn't go on being pushed around by everything that tried to pull me down. The cow looked like it was about to charge at us again. I took a step forward. It did a short charge at us and tried to gore us with its horns. I reached out to grab the horns and pull its head away. One hand got a horn, but my other hand somehow slipped and ended up in the thing's mouth. As fast as I could, I pulled my hand back, but the thing bit down hard. It had my ring finger in its teeth. I looked into its eyes and saw a horrifying orange intelligence there as it slowly but surely bit through my finger. I could feel the bone coming out of its socket. I screamed, but I was so shocked and wound up, I barely felt anything. I fell back against the truck looking at the stump, and I was sure the cow thing was smiling a grotesque cow smile at me. I was bleeding everywhere and the flies were gathering around the blood. Howie, your finger, McMyrtle said. I wondered if the peckerhead's idiotic statement would be the last thing I ever heard on this earth as the cow got ready to attack again. And then, out of the clear night sky, there was a blinding flash of lightning and a peal of thunder. In the flash, I saw him, on the roof of the milk station, a huge dark figure in a long black whale-skin coat. I saw the beard, the sharp blue eyes. It was Travis. He wore a great horned helmet and at his side was a harpoon that must have been ten feet long. The harpoon's bone blade was long and emitted a nearly blinding green light. In an instant, Travis drew back and hurled the weapon. It sailed through the air and penetrated the back of the cow's head and I watched the thing's eyes go out like candles. The cow slumped to the ground, black as coal. Howie, take the harpoon, Travis shouted. I looked up at him and he pointed towards the hole in the parking lot. Take it, now. I saw some large shape trying to pull itself out of the hole in the ground. I felt this strange feeling come over me, and somehow I knew for the first time in my life that I was in control, never mind all the chaos around me. I pulled the harpoon out of the carcass. It was light in my hands, even without my finger, and even though it was so long and felt like it was made of iron. The flies seemed to steer clear of the whalebone blade. 
With its light, I could see the man in the brown suit, now larger than life, trying to crawl up out of the hole. I knew what to do, but I stopped when I saw my father's face drunken slurring, but his body was huge, a giant bubbling blob trying to force its way up. Help me up out of here. Howie, Travis yelled. I turned and watched him jump from the roof of the station down onto the ground without even stumbling. Travis ran at me. That's not your father. Kill it now. I turned. I raised the harpoon and I drove it down into the thing's face. All at once, it seemed to explode into a geyser of green. I fell back, blinded by the force of a green shockwave. I learned later that the waves spread out across the town, and the flies and bugs and other things all dropped dead as it made its way across St. Gaffs. But there, in the parking lot, Travis and McMurdle and I just stood and watched as the geyser of bright green steam shot up higher and higher into the sky. It was like a million hypnotic beads of light and mist. It made hardly any sound, and it was strangely calming to watch the plume rising up and up. And it was that night that all the stars turned from red to green. No one knew it at the time, but the geyser would keep going all through the fall and winter, and it didn't stop until the spring. Later, wealthy people and scientists would come to St. Gaff's to look at the geyser and try to figure it out. I had some vague recollection of leaving the geyser and showing up at Dr. Barrett's. I recalled wrinkles forming on his forehead when I told him a cow did it, but he'd cleaned and burned the wound, which I could still hardly feel, and then he bandaged my finger up. After that, when the sun was coming up, I went back to my building. The door was open now, and Mrs. Summertag looked like she'd swallowed a goldfish when she saw me. Why didn't you let me in? Oh, sorry, Howie, I didn't know it was you out there. Hard to see with all the flies, you know, but you're okay now? Everything fine? I went up to my room, The door was open, and a lot of my stuff had been thrown around or was missing. Strange. But I grabbed my pipe that I'd gotten from Mr. Greenwood and some tobacco that was still there, and headed down to the harbor. I just sat there for a long time, watching the sun come up. Then, at about nine o'clock... I was sitting in the ruins of the shipyard smoking my pipe and trying to piece together what had happened. It was all just shattered bits of memory that came back. It was a bright and cool morning with no clouds and the sun made everything sharp and clear. I was still getting used to not having a ring finger. I learned later that Walker, the old milkman, had been killed, trampled to death by some unknown beast. There were a few other deaths from people falling into the holes. Some had choked to death on flies. A couple of the deceased were on my route. Mrs. Pyman had bled to death, and they found her body close to where her husband got dumped in the water. Then I remembered standing by the geyser, and the milkmen were there, Corwin and Frank and Beaver. Corwin asked me what had happened, Travis was nowhere to be seen. 
I tried to explain about the geyser, but couldn't really make any sense. But it was that morning, as I sat there on the concrete block smoking my pipe, that the men from the geological survey came. I watched as the ferry pulled in, much earlier than usual, and all the men in black uniforms from the geological survey ran out and started roping off the holes and the geyser. Later that day, they called a town meeting and their leader explained that there'd just been an earthquake that had released an underground colony of cave flies. But all the strange things everyone had seen, those were all hallucinations induced by the strange gases the earthquake had released. When Granard stood up and asked how it was that we'd all seen the same things, the geological man, who knew a lot about science, explained that it was pretty common for whole groups to have these culturally induced hallucinations. We'd all grown up with stories about the evil things that lived underground, but no rational person now believed that there was anything evil down there, just pockets of gas and the odd creature we hadn't gotten around to classifying yet. The townsfolk more or less went along with the explanation, not wanting to sound like hillbillies in the face of such an erudite man from Mingsbite. But the men from the geological survey weren't the only ones on the ferry that morning. After they'd gotten off, the big black car I'd seen so long ago drove off the boat. It was the man from the Department of Lactic Affairs. He stopped to talk to me when he saw my uniform. Are you injured? lost a finger. Lost in the line of duty? Yes, sir. Good for you, son. You're a real milkman now. No one can ever take that away from you. Then he told the driver to go to the milk station and drove off. My heart swelled with pride. Corwin was right. Being a milkman really was a vocation. And last night, I'd heard the call loud and clear. Then, in a flash, I remembered last night, standing there beside the geyser with Travis beside me, and everything he'd said came back to me, and I understood it, finally. I was a seeker. I'd been plagued all my life by the things that wanted me to go back underground. I'd done a lot of bad things in my life, but I had not killed Billings. I had not killed my father. Now that I understood that I was a seeker and could do amazing things, I knew that I could be a really useful part of the department. Maybe I'd even get Stormy back when she realized how amazing I was. I thought about Travis and how he'd always wanted to talk to me about being a seeker, and how I never really wanted to talk about it. I bet he knew a lot of things he could teach me. I bet I'd be the only milkman seeker. When I walked back into town, the townsfolk were already getting busy sweeping up the dead flies and things with brooms. Sometimes I wondered at them and wished I could be one of those people who just automatically set about tidying up and making sure everything was where it should be. There was Mr. Noseworthy shoveling the dead things into a wheelbarrow. If I didn't know better, I'd say there was a little hint of a smile on his face and I thought I heard him humming a tune. He looked up at me. Morning, Howie. You made out okay last night? I sort of nodded and tried to smile, but kept walking. I passed the barber, cleaning his shop window. He looked over at me. Quite the commotion last night. I didn't say anything. 
I saw Granard near the chiffery. When he saw me, he just looked at the ground and hurried inside. The people of the town were just like ants or worker bees, and it never occurred to them to do anything but what they were supposed to do. I knew now that all my hopes of having a house and a normal life with Stormy were just imaginary visions in my dreams that would never come true. I'd never spend my days puttering around in the garden or repainting my porch. And as much as I daydreamed about these things, it struck me like a clock bell. I would never be like them, and I didn't even want to be. I walked on and my heart froze when, right around Mercy and Grand, I saw my beloved Stormy sitting on her broken porch staring blankly at her rose bushes, all covered in gunk and dead flies. She hadn't done anything to clean the place up. When I approached, she just turned her face away from me. I'd just been about to say something, but I closed my mouth and walked on. I knew that talking to her right now was a bad idea, but I held on to the hope that maybe one day I'd convince her that this had all been for the best. I felt that I'd grown a lot since coming here. I'd learned a lot about life and love. I thought about reading Eliza Pike with Stormy, telling her how I wanted to live with her in some out-of-the-way place raising rabbits and other animals. And I remembered, too, how she didn't like that idea at all, and that she wanted to live a more adventurous life. If nothing else, I knew that I'd helped make sure that she wouldn't live an ordinary life. I was really exhausted, but this was war, and I decided to go to the milk station to see if there was anything I could do, and if I could catch any of what the man from the department and Corwin were talking about. When I did get back to the station, I marveled at the stream of green that went up as far as the eye could see, but I pulled myself away when I remembered why I'd come. Inside, I just caught a few words between the man and Corwin. Something about retrofitting the thermalizer for a new kind of fuel. I was astonished by their determination. They weren't giving up, even though their efforts had nearly destroyed the whole town. When they noticed me hanging around, Corwin turned to me. Howie, you were there when this happened. When the geyser erupted? I was. And how exactly did it happen? I'm not completely sure, Mr. Corwin. I was with McMurtle, and we were fighting with the cow, and it bit off my finger. And then, I don't know, there was just this geyser coming up out of the ground. Hmm, we've heard that Travis was there. He might have been. It's all a bit of a haze for me. You've spent some time with Travis, is that right? Yes, sir, he's on my route. Or he used to be. Well, McMurdle's got some recuperating to do, so why don't you go back to your old route for now? Thank you, Mr. Corwin. Then he straightened up. The town has suffered a great tragedy, but this is war and we have a duty to continue delivering milk. We will redouble our efforts to clear the town of vermin. You take the rest of the day off, but you be back here first thing in the morning. I want you to speak with Travis. Find out what he knows about last night's events. I have a suspicion he might be useful to us. Yes, sir. You mean you think he's a subversive? No, Howie. I don't think so. You just ask him, subtly, about last night and let me know what he says. The next morning, driving out along the coast road just before dawn, my thoughts were racing. I was a little concerned. What if they figured out that Travis really was a seeker after all? Maybe they planned to recruit him to be a milkman in some high-up position. 
Then they wouldn't need me anymore. I had to figure out how to let them know that I was the only seeker and the only one who could really help them. I'd have to handle the situation with a lot of care. As I was driving up the rocky, treeless coast, a muskrat started walking across the road. I grabbed the steering wheel. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.